there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James, and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. I'm going to talk about patience this morning. The dictionary defines patience as the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. I would add to that without getting the three Ds. Three Ds for me would be discouraged, despondent, depressed. Now, I found that in this work, it's very difficult for people to have patience, and it's very difficult for them to avoid the three Ds, discouragement, depression, despondency. And it's been said that patience is a virtue. Possess it if you can. Seldom found in woman, never found in man. And that of course, is the silliest thing I've ever heard in my life because we all know that we're men of action. What need have men of action for patience? We can do it. That's the one thing we know we can do. We're men, right? We can do that. Women, on the other hand, are different, so we can understand that they need patience. They carry babies for nine months and, you know, gestate and all that other stuff. So we can expect that from them. But it's still, you know, the, the author, whoever it was, said this, it's seldom found in woman. And uh, I think, you know, we don't really need it. Men, as a rule, feel that they don't really need patience. And I say as a rule, it doesn't mean you have to object or take exception, but you can if you like to, if you need to. If your ego dictates to you that you have to object, then go ahead and do it. Enjoy it. And do it for as long as you need to do it. Just remember that you've closed the door. You've shut out the light every time you do that. But the bottom line is we do think we can do regardless of what we're taught. We're taught that we really, you know, the fourth way teaches we can't do. But it's so obvious that we can do that we know that that must be wrong, that that must mean someone else, that must mean other people who are not as enlightened as we are, other people who have not worked on themselves as much, other people who have not observed themselves as much, other people who have an understanding, who, who don't have the understanding that we have, other people that haven't worked to open themselves up to get the light that we've gotten. So it doesn't seem right. It seems like we can do. That part of the work is obviously wrong. And as I've said before, and I'll say again because it is still true, we approach the work as we approach everything esoteric in all religion and almost everything in life. We approach it as if it's a cafeteria. We go in, we choose what we like and what we want and what suits us. Well, that's tasty, I'll have that, but I don't like that, so I'm not going to have that. So we go in and we take what we want and leave the rest. And of course, we end up pretty much malnourished or unbalanced. And that's what this work is all about, is about balancing. It's about finding out what it is we like and how to back off from that a little bit and finding out what it is we don't like so that we can begin to work on liking that, actually moving more in that direction. Another way to put it is the idea of the pendulum in the esoteric teachings that we swing from one extreme to another extreme. 
we start off with not liking somebody or we start off loving someone. That's a good example. Oh, I just love that person. That person is so wonderful. And oh, we're just, we spend so much time together and it's so, it's just so romantic and it's so wonderful. And oh, I just, I never want to be without that person. And then that all starts to wear thin. And then that person's unpleasant manifestations begin to become obvious. And then after they become obvious, they become annoying. And after they become annoying, we find that we start to develop an aversion for those unpleasant manifestations. And then we lose track of the unpleasant manifestations and we, we see the unpleasant manifestations not as unpleasant manifestations anymore, but that person is just a pain in the butt. <coughs> and if it goes far enough, we know that love often turns to hate. It's the exact opposite. So we find that love that turns to hate is no love at all, but it's the only love that we have, the only love that we know, the only love that's real for us. So we find ourselves swinging from one side of the pendulum to the other side of the pendulum. And it's problematic for us because we go back and forth and back and forth, repeating, 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 and it's very unpleasant. And so the work says, you know, the, the fourth way says, well, you know, what we need to be doing is instead of swinging through this pendulum, swinging through the middle so quickly, because we know that up here, this side, if you think of a, a pendulum on a clock, up here, this side is very slow and it stops for a moment before it starts to swing back. Then it picks up speed as it swings back and then it starts to slow down as it gets to the other side and it stops. And then it picks up speed, as, but it goes through the middle the quickest of all. Most of us don't even know we have a middle. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't exist for us. We go by it so quickly we don't even know that it exists. We spend our time lingering here or lingering there and waiting to go back to the other side. So it's one of the things that we are encouraged to work on. Gurdjieff said, a man must work against chief feature in order to change himself. We use this to imagine that we can change ourselves. He said, somebody's got to work on chief feature in order to change himself. And we think, okay, well, then it must be possible to change myself. If Gurdjieff said it's possible to change myself, and he's the one who brought all this around for people to look at in the West, then it must mean that it's possible to change myself. It couldn't, it's not possible that we must understand that. It's not possible that the way we take it is not the way he meant it. And the reason it's not possible is because we know everything, because we thought it. And if we think something, we know it must be right because we thought it. Why else would we think it? How many people go around thinking stuff they know is wrong? How many people go around doing things they know is, they know is wrong? It's like, okay, I'm going to do this. I know it's wrong. It's very rare. I think you said the other day, nobody can be right. Nobody can be wrong 100% of the time, and if, and which, of course, isn't true. But I understand the, the idea behind it. But it's not true. Somebody can be wrong 100% of the time. Because it's possible for somebody to be right 100% of the time, it is also possible for somebody to be wrong 100% of the time. Because all you have to do to be either right or wrong 100% of the time, since there really is no right or wrong, all you have to do is be whole. All you have to do is have one will. All you have to be, all you have to be is man number seven, as, as the fourth way would call it. That is, a man who is crystallized in a fully balanced conscious man. You're fully balanced, you're fully conscious, you have, you understand, and then you can be 100% because you can give your word and you can keep your word. You have one will. You are a unified being. And we don't know anything about that except theoretically. We imagine that we are that, but a little bit of self-observation, directed proper self-observation, shows us that we're not like that, that actually we're just the opposite. But most people would rather have this in the intellectual center than in a practical way where they actually have to look at themselves and say, oh my gosh, I'm really not one, I'm really not awake, I'm really not 
able to do. I'm really not an integrated whole being. I really don't have one will. I have a multiplicity of wills. There's a whole bunch of different eyes in me that one wants to do this and one wants to do that and whichever one climbs up to the throne for the moment and is able to throw some whoever else is sitting on the throne throw that one out and play king of the mountain you remember king of the mountain as you were a child we first we didn't have any mountains but we had little hills and we get on this big dirt pile and kids would throw each other off you know whoever could be king of the mountain and it's like it was very rare for for equals to be king of the mountain for very long you know it's you king of the mountain for a while and then somebody comes up behind you and pulls your pant legs out from under you and you're down and they're up and so somebody else is king of the mountain and pretty much that's how it is with us we have one eye that's king of the mountain for this moment another eye that's king of the mountain for that moment another eye that's king of the mountain the next moment <clears throat> we think that each eye that's king of the mountain is the real eye we don't see them changing we just say i think i feel well, now I think this, and now I think that. Well, it's contradictory. No, it's not contradictory. It can't be contradictory because I think it. And we don't step back far enough to see that we contradict ourselves all the time. We are living, breathing, moving, pulsating contradictions. We, con- we, we contradict ourselves all the time. But we have these blocks, these buffers, these screens, like in cubicles. I don't know if you ever worked around cubicles, but it's, you have, yeah. I hear it's very unpleasant for a lot of people. You know, here you are in this little cubicle, just cut off from everyone else, but it's not completely cut off because people still want to see that you're working and they don't want you to be lying on the desk there sleeping or whatever. So they still want to be able to come by and make sure that you're, they want to come by and crack the money whip so that, you know, and you know that game, they, they crack the money whip. So the game is slave ship, it's called. The slave ship is when you go to work and you don't work. So if somebody comes by and they crack the money whip. Okay, if you don't work, you're not going to get any money. And you go, oh, okay, okay, I'll work. So the game on slave ship is don't row. That's your, your part of the game is don't row. Because if you row, then they don't have to crack the money whip. And if they don't crack the money whip, then you don't get the money. So you have to not row. So you go to work and you don't work. So then they come around and they crack the money whip and then you work. And this, uh, it happens more in our culture than it does in like Eastern cultures. Like Japan, it's just the opposite. In Japan, they go to work and they work. And if they're not getting enough money, then they work harder. And if they still don't get enough money, then they come in extra time and they work even harder. And they work faster and they do better work. Until finally, their bosses are shamed. They're so shamed by how hard these people are working and how much they're giving that they, in order to save face, they give them a raise. I know, you see, we can't even think... You you look at that and you go, what? Nobody does that. No, nobody here does that. But they do that in Japan. And for us, it's like so difficult to understand. Well, why would they do that? That would never work here. And of course, you're right. It would never work here. And the reason it wouldn't work here, the reason it wouldn't work here is because we're not willing to work because we are committed to the idea of not working so that we can make them do what we want them to do. And in Japan, it's just the same thing. They want to make the bosses do what they want them to do. They just have an entirely different approach because they're a different culture and saving face is more important than anything else. We find that difficult to understand because all we have to do is put on a new face. All we have to do is pretend to be something else. All we have to do is that. And so we end up this fragmented multiplicity of this fragmented personality, this many different eyes, many different selves, and all we have to do is pull out a new one. So I'm with these people, well, this is the face I'll wear. Well, I'm with those people, this is the face I'll wear. It's kind of like that. So when Gurdjieff said, a man must work against chief feature in order to change himself, we begin to imagine from that that we can actually change ourselves, which I don't think is the case. We get hold of this esoteric idea with the opposing thumb of the formatory apparatus and look to the fast lane of development. 
How long is it going to take you to develop? Somebody said yesterday, I don't have enough time. Who was that? I don't have enough time. I'm not going to be able to do all this. You said it takes a long, long time. That's discouraging. So one of the three Ds is in place, discouragement. And then what will happen is there'll be some despondency and some depression about that if you think about it long enough until you finally... It's like, oh, what's the use? You know, I'm never going to make it. Either this guy's wrong or I'm never going to make it. So how can I deal with this? How do I deal with these three Ds? How do I deal with this? How do I change myself? How do I get beyond this? How do I get in the fast lane? And as we and how we do it is we get hold of it. We grab hold of it. And we think, and, and we grab hold of it with the formatory apparatus. Now, the formatory apparatus, in case you're not familiar with the term, is that part of the intellectual center that is very formatory. I like this, I don't like that. Yes, no, hot, cold, good, bad. And it's how our intellect works. You don't eat what you're supposed to eat. Bill came in and he said, well, tea would probably be better for me, but I'm going to have this Pepsi. He knows better and he acts worse. And how old are you? Yeah. So there you go. Old enough. Old enough to know better is, is the answer, right? Old enough to know better, but not old, old, not old enough to act better. Not, en- not old enough to do what I know that I should do. This is where we all end up. This is what we all do. And so this is one of the things that the work shows us and says, look, this is one of the things you need to work on. Right now, you don't do what you know. You do something else. You do something mechanical. You take the easier way. You do what you've always done. You go by old associations. You know that's not good for you. But you don't have enough time and you don't have the energy and you don't have the force to do anything about that. And there's only a can of Pepsi. Who cares? It's not that important. Whereas it's a matter of life and death. It's the one thing that you need to work on. And it's the one thing you won't work on because it's not important enough. You get my drift? Good. Good. So, you know, I'm very fond of pointing people out who do things like that so I can use them as examples. <laughs> you came here, you know, it's like you came into the, you, you entered the field, you know. It's just like any other game. You get on the court and it's like you're counted as a player whether you're playing or not. So there it is. At least that's the way I look at it. <clears throat> Ospensky said, if you were told your chief feature, you would never believe it. It would prevent you from ever realizing it for yourself by internal observation. Again, we go back to this whole idea of this is self-development. You can listen to me and you can listen to podcasts and you can read essays and you can read books from now until Hades freezes over. And it will not develop you. It will not develop you because books can't develop you and other people's experience can't develop you and listening to podcasts can't develop you and reading books can't develop you and being around somebody who's developed can't develop you. The only thing that can develop you is you putting these ideas to work in your personal life on a daily basis. Well, for most people, who cares? Who needs that? I make it to the grave just fine. I don't need to do this to die. When they screw the lid down on the coffin, it's not going to matter. You know, I don't have to do this in order to get to the end of life. Everybody gets to the end of life. It's a mechanical thing. It happens. It's just what happens. People say with age comes wisdom. We know that's not true. Age doesn't come with wisdom unless you did the things that bring wisdom. If you didn't do the things that bring wisdom, you're just old. That's all. And you can be old and stupid, really old and stupid. Just like you can be young and stupid or middle-aged and stupid. Slow to apprehend is what I mean by stupid. Slow to apprehend. It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not slanderous. It's not a, a put-down on anybody. It's simply slow to apprehend, obtuse. 
some people just don't hone that skill of understanding. They don't create the force of understanding themselves because they're too busy doing something else. And that something else is something that takes no consciousness, that takes no awareness, that takes no directed attention and no effort. Because it's easier. Or we could say we take the line of least resistance. I live in a town in California that used to be a farming community where they had avocado ranches. And the roads, many of the roads, um, are very twisty and illogical and not sensible at all. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. And the reason is because of our nature. Because when people started to make their way through the hills, what they did was they followed the paths that the animals had left. And animals don't think about how to get from point A to point B, the straightest, easiest route. They go this far and then there's a tree there, so they go around it. And, but then there's a neighborhood over here where there's lots of animals that like to eat these little animals, so they avoid that and they go around it. And so it gets all twisty, and there are all kinds of different things that affect that. But then bigger animals come along and they take the same path. Okay, the little animals went here, so now the bigger animals go there because the path has already started. And then bigger animals come until we finally get there. And then we walk that path. And then we hitch up an animal to a cart and we take that path. And then we say, well, there's that path. And then we call that path a road. And then when it rains, we go up there and we straighten out that road and we fix that. And then one day we decide to pave that road. Maybe we put cobblestones down or maybe we put gravel down. Or maybe we just put asphalt down, whatever we do. And then we end up with these roads that are all twisty and crazy that make no sense at all. Why? Why? Well, because it was the line of least resistance, because nobody sat down and said, okay, we need to look at this objectively from back here instead of down here and decide which is going to be the best way, not just for us right now, but for every day that's coming up, all the times that we're going to have to travel this road and for all the people that are going to travel this road. <coughs> the line of least resistance. As Ospensky said, if you were told your chief feature, and if it's true that you would not believe it, and if it really did prevent you from realizing it for yourself by internal observation, that would send us in a certain direction, if we believe that, if that were true. But we know that's not true. We know that that may be true for most of the people, but it's not true for you. We know that you are sincere enough, you are smart enough, you are enlightened enough, that if somebody told you your chief feature, you would believe it. You would know it, you would accept it, and you would work on it. But he says no. And we say, well, I would believe it. Just tell me and watch me work. I'll prove it to you. Just tell me, what's my chief feature? Just tell me what it is, and I'll show you. I'll prove it to you that I will do this. Of course, there's the other side of the pendulum, too, the lazy side of the 3Ds. Tell somebody their chief feature, and they go, oh, God, I'll never be able to do that. Forget it. You're probably right. That's my chief feature. I don't have enough time. I'll never be able to work on that. Just forget it. I guess I'll just have to, like, never develop and die, and it'll be awful. And boo-hoo. That's right where it goes. So we have that. The key to everything is patience, Arnold Glasgow said. The key to everything is patience. You get the chicken by hatching the egg, not by smashing it. Jesus said from the time... From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For those of you who are interested, that's in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. Well, those days are past. There was a time when an expanding consciousness is what the kingdom of heaven stands for, is an expanding state of consciousness, an expanding state of awareness. It's not a static state of someplace you get to and that's it. It's this expanding awareness. And it's a process. The same way the universe is expanding at an alarming rate. 
all the planets, the galaxies, everything is moving outward at an alarming rate. Theorized that there was this, there was a time when it was all this bound up tight fist of a thing, this particle of a thing, and all of a sudden it went boom and started to blow out in all directions. And for millions of years it's been doing that, just moving out, moving out, moving out, expanding, expanding, expanding. You believe whatever you want to believe about that. I don't really care. The truth is we know that it is actually, that everything is moving out. We do know that. We have been able to measure that. We've been able to see that. We've been able to verify that scientifically. We know that's true. What we don't know is why, where it's going, where it came from. We don't know any of that, but we think we do, and we like to think that, so we do. Because the mind loves answers. It doesn't care whether the answers are right or wrong. It just wants answers. Look, just give me answers. It's like eating. You know, if you're really hungry, you don't really care what, what you're eating. You just want to eat. And it's like breathing. Well, if you're breathing, you don't really care. I mean, you can care about the quality of the air. But the bottom line is, if this is the only air you've got to breathe, you breathe it. That's that. You don't worry about that too much. If you can do something about it, you do something about it. If you can't, you do the best you can do. When the air runs out, that's it. Shortly thereafter, you're done. Same thing with food. Same thing with water. You can go without food much longer than you can go without water. You go without water much longer than you can go without air. You can go without impressions. You can go without air much longer than you can go without impressions. You can't go without impressions for nanoseconds. You must have them to live. We don't know that. We're not aware of that because we don't even really know what impressions are. What's an impression? What are you talking about? We don't have to have that. But we know what food is. We know what water is. We know what air is. Why? Well, because we live through our five senses. We don't live this internal life. We don't live this life of self-observation. We don't live this life of consciousness, of awareness. We live this life where we are directed by life. We're actually machines that are directed by life. Life acts upon us, and then we react to that action. And we call that being awake. We say, well, no, I did that. And we have no idea why we did that. We have an idea why we did it, but we have no idea really why we did it. We have no idea of what the driving force is for us. What is it that makes us do the things we do? We think it's one thing, but what this work is saying, what esoteric teachers, teachings are saying is, that's not true. You're mistaken. You do not know yourself. You do not know what life is about. You do not know what you're for. You do not know what you're doing here. You're mistaken. That this little sliver, this little fraction of time that you call your life is like a breath. It's here today, gone tomorrow. Compared to the, tr the sequoias in, in, in the, in the Redwood Forest in uh, California, your life is a joke. There are trees that have watched generation after generation after generation go by. And they breathe slower. Trees breathe more slowly. They think differently. You know how much of your DNA is shared with a tree? 94%, I think it is. 94% of your DNA you share with a tree. It's a little interesting. You know, you think about it. It's an interesting concept. Yeah. That 94% of your DNA is shared with a tree. And trees live longer than you as a rule, until we get, until we make Kleenex and books out of them. But there are some trees that live longer than other trees. Some, just like there's some people that live longer than other people. Why is that? That's neither here nor there. We're talking about, <laughs> we're talking about the, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Violent men take it by force. But from the days of John the Baptist until now. So what he's saying is that something is different now. There's something that's different. We all come to a point in our lives where something has to change, or it doesn't. For you, if you wish to develop that something that has to change, is your focus has to change from being directed by life to being directed by something else. 
to being directed, essentially, what, what, the, what these esoteric teachings are saying, is directed by something higher, something that doesn't come from life. So the things that come from life support life and will push you in the direction of life's purpose for you. What is life's purpose for you? Esoteric teachings say that life's purpose for you is food, that life basically uses you for the energy that, you can, that it can get from you. Just like we raise sheep and cattle and chickens and turkeys. Why do we do that? Well, we do that for the energy that we can get from them. What energy? Well, we eat them. We kill them and we eat them. And then we turn that, their bodies into energy for ourselves so that we can do that. What esoteric teachings saying, are saying is that life does the same thing with us. That if we remain asleep, if we remain at the animal level, if we remain directed by life, that all we are is a function of life, just a part of life, part of the organic film on this planet that is there for one reason only, like grass. Why is grass there? Well, if you're a cow, grass is there to eat. If you're a sheep, grass is there to eat. If you're life, people are there to eat. And so what esoteric teachings are saying is you can either be eaten by life or you can eat life. Well, most of us are not willing to eat life because we don't know we're being eaten by life. We think we're living life. We don't know that life is living us. We think that we're making decisions and we're doing this and we're doing that. In spite of all the facts in your life that show you how completely out of control you are, we still have this imagination that it's not that way or that it could be some other way. All we'd have to do, all we'd have to do is put our minds to it and we could change it like that. Self-observation shows you that that is just not true. Proper self-observation. You really begin to observe yourself as you're directed to do it. Then you find that it's not that way. I can't do I'm not in control. I do imagine that I'm somebody that I'm not. And you start to find out who you are, and it's a painful experience, isn't it? It can really be a painful experience. It's like, who would do this? Who would voluntarily do this? Who would voluntarily submit themselves to seeing all these horrible things about this wonderful person? I'm a good guy. Why, 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 do, I have to, why do I have to look at the... Why, do, why are they saying this about me? This isn't true about me. I'm a nice guy. Oh, and then what, what do we do? We go and we find people who will agree with us. We find supporters. We get evidence. We say, see, my mom thinks I'm the most wonderful person on earth. You know, <laughs> This person over here really loves me and they think I'm wonderful. And so we find that. We find all the things that will support staying the same and none of the things that will support internal change, metanoia, changing our minds about ourselves, seeing things about ourselves that we have been up until this moment unwilling to see. Now we gain an expanding consciousness by letting the light of consciousness into our internal darkness. There was a time when we could force things, but that time has passed. Right up until John the Baptist, things could be forced, but then there's a switch that has to happen. Remember what John the Baptist said? He said about Jesus, he said, he must become greater, I must become less. And what he's talking about is this rebirth, this new birth. But you have to become less. This false personality, this identity that you have, this thing that, the, that you have acquired through being in the world and being around other sleeping people, that has to diminish so that something else in you can increase. And what the fourth way calls that something else is your essential self, your essence. You can call it whatever you want to call it. I, I really don't care what you call it. You call it Bob. I don't care. I mean, truly. It doesn't matter. It's so unimportant what you call it. Unfortunately, you will notice that everyone in life, almost everyone in life, makes everything about the label and not anything about what's in the can. It's all about how pretty it looks. It's all about the pretense. It's all about the mask. It's all about the outside. It's all about the exterior. You know, what is the one thing that you are most afraid of besides death? 
What's the one thing you're most afraid of? Well, I'll tell you what it is, because you're not going to tell me. It's being found out. That's what it is. It's being found out. You do not want to be found out. You don't want people to know who you are. Not really. You want people to know what you want them to know. You want people to know this facade. You want people to know this mask. You want people to know this suit. You want people to know this thing that you have created or that has been created for you in life. You want to be able to pick and choose what people know. You want to present. Okay, let's look at a simple thing like photographs of you. When you see photographs of yourself, okay, you got your driver's license here? How's that picture look? How's your driver's license picture? How's yours? It's okay. Well, good. You got a good one. How's yours? Mine sucks. I mean, it just doesn't look like me. It makes me look too old, and it's not nearly... I didn't smile. When I did, they told me to smile. I didn't really want to smile. When I smiled, it looked just like I was a fake smile. It's just awful. It's just not me at all. Now, of course, you're a liar, so you're going to say, oh, it's okay. But see, I'm going to tell the truth about it. I say, it's not okay at all. It's not anything near how I see myself. How I see myself is much more beautiful than within that picture. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure there's a camera in the world that could portray me as I actually am. I'm so wonderful and full of light. Now... You're not going to say that because you have all these things that are saying, oh, no, that's vain. Oh, no, that's this. And I'm not that. And I say you are. I say I say you are. And the work says you are. And all esoteric teachings for thousands of years have said you are. But you say, no, that's a cafeteria. I don't like that, so I'm not going to take that. I'm not putting that on my plate. And I say, fine, then you'll stay the same. You will not change. You will not develop. If you want to develop, you've got to give something up. And that's something that you have to give up is what you're hanging on to. That's the good news. That's the good news. The bad news is it takes a long time and it's not that easy. The good news is you can do it. The bad news is it's not easy and it does take a long time. Oh, no. But it is possible. If you're told some truth that you've not yet reached inside, it will hinder you due to the power of imagination. If I tell you something that you haven't seen in yourself, what you will do is you will imagine now that you see it because someone else who you said, well, that guy knows. That's the right thing to think. That's the right way to be. And you'll start to be that way in your mind, in your imagination. You won't actually be that way. You will just imagine that you are that way. This is a very difficult thing for people to comprehend until they can see it for themselves. When you see, when you actually begin to see how much of your life is pure imagination, how much of your work is pure imagination, when you actually begin to see it, the three Ds show up. Smiling, leering, rubbing their hands together. (laughs) We're going to have a meal now. And they begin to eat you. They begin to eat your force and eat your energy and eat your happiness so that you become more and more despondent, more and more discouraged, more and more depressed until finally you're ready ready to throw in the towel. There are two ways to throw in the towel. One way is you quit and you jump off the balcony. The other way is you go back into imagination. Say, well, I knew I wasn't that way. This is all wrong anyway. I'm not going to that cafeteria anymore. They don't have good food. I'm changing restaurants. When we imagine we have something, we stop seeking it. I've used the example, for those of you who listen to podcasts for a while, I've used the example of if you, if, you, you know, if you know where your car keys are and you're fine, you don't look for them. But if you go to get your car keys and they're not there, then you realize, I don't know where my car keys are. And the first thing you do is what? You find out who took your car keys. <laughs> where did you put my, what, who moved my car keys? Now, if there's nobody to blame, you live alone, there's no one to blame, then you have to go, okay, what did I do with my car keys? I left them somewhere and now I can't remember where. So you start to think, where did I leave my car keys? And you start to retrace your steps. That's someone who has begun to observe the fact that there's really nobody to blame. If I lost my car keys, I'm pretty sure now that I forgot where I put them. I was being inattentive asleep. 
unconscious. I put them somewhere and now I can't remember where they were. I was distracted or whatever the story is that we tell ourselves. And so well, there's no one to blame. We look for our car keys and we blame ourselves. Oh, I must be getting old timer's disease or whatever, you know, and we have that going on. Well, we always find somebody to blame unless we've learned how to bite the bullet, unless we've learned how to observe ourselves, unless we learn how to separate and not identify with what it is we observe and say, okay, well, that's just the way that is. My, I was unconscious. I don't know where I left my car keys. Now I will sit down and try and become more conscious and think back through my steps, retrace my steps until I can remember where my car keys, where I put my car keys. I used to have this big thing in the kitchen where I would go to find something in the kitchen and it wasn't there. And, you know, it was always my wife who moved it. <coughs> then one day, somehow, some freaky event, I don't know what it was, I think probably the stars lined up in a certain way and the planets, you know, did whatever they did. And all of a sudden I had this realization that I actually left something somewhere and it wasn't her. It was startling. It was, it was truly amazing. Like I thought, wow. And then I dismissed it. I had what I wanted, so I quit looking and I had that realization. That was that. And then it happened again. Maybe a few days later it happened again. Wow. And I forgot it. And then it happened again. And then it happened repeatedly. And I started, and then one day... I caught myself thinking, oh, where did she do with that? What did she do with that now? And then I remembered how many times I had been the one. And it wasn't her at all. I had been the one. And I went, oh. And I stopped it right there. I just stopped it. I stopped blaming her. And I said, jeez, that poor girl all this time I've been blaming her. And she's had to put up all those unpleasant manifestations. So I told her about it. I apologized. took the risk of apologizing. Because when you take the risk of apologizing, of course, you're admitting you were wrong. When you admit you're wrong and you have abused someone, they don't always, they're not always as gracious as they could be. Sometimes they just want to get even. They just want to say, well, see, I knew it. You jerk. I told you. I've been telling you. Why wouldn't you listen to me? The same reason I never listened to anybody. I'm the ultimate authority in life. Just like you. Just like you. Why are you here? You're here because you have decided that maybe I have something for you. And you'll be here with that decision until you decide that I don't. But you are the ultimate authority. You are the one who's deciding. You're deciding. You're the one who picks who's the teacher. You're the one who decides. And that makes you the ultimate authority. That makes you essentially the teacher. And you'll use a teacher for as long as you can use them. But when they're no longer in agreement with the ultimate authority, they're no longer the teacher. The cafeteria principle again. I like this, I don't like that. He's right about this, he's wrong about that. It takes a tremendous amount of courage and self-observation to face the fact that somebody else could be right and you could be wrong. That you're not the ultimate authority. That there is something higher than you. Well, okay, there may be something higher than you, but it's, though, there may be something higher than me, but it's not you. That's the salvation of the ego. That's the ego's salvation. Okay, well, there may be something higher than me, but it's not you. I don't know what it is, but it's not you. I'm sure of that. I'm sure it's not a person. I'm sure it's God, maybe, or, or the absolute, or something, a higher emotional, or a higher intellectual, or something else, the conscious circle of humanity. But it's not you, because we're all, you know, pretty much equal, and I'm just a little bit better than you. Everybody here is just a little bit better than everybody else. You know that, right? You know about yourself that you're just a little bit better than everybody else. And if you're not just a little bit better than everybody else, because you could be, like no effort really is involved. You just like keep in a low profile so you don't make them feel bad. It's called pride and vanity. The two great giants, the first thing they do is blind us. They put our eyes out and then they take us by the hand and they take us wherever they want us to go. And when they allow us to see, we see what they show us. We're completely controlled by them, directed by them. But we don't know that because we're blind. When the light of consciousness reveals to us, everything is different. 
So we imagine we have something, we don't look for it. We find out that we don't have it, everything's different. It's like, oh, when we start looking. You find out you don't have your keys, you start looking for your keys. You reach in your pocket, it's not there, then you start looking. Oh, you check your other pocket. Then you check your jacket pocket. Then you check your coat pocket. Then you check whatever you check, and you go through the list of trying to find what it is you thought you had in your pocket that you actually didn't have in your pocket. But it's the light of consciousness, the awareness that you don't have it, that gets you moving. This whole thing doesn't come about suddenly, though, like finding your keys. Trying to see yourself is like looking in a mirror once in a while and trying to remember what it was you saw. I promise you, you do not know what you look like. You can recognize yourself, but you recognize only one part of yourself. That's why when you see a video of yourself or you hear a recording of yourself, if you haven't heard recordings of yourself a lot, you haven't watched yourself on video a lot, if it's a surprise to you, it's because you don't know yourself. You ever walk through a store or someplace and you walk by a mirror and you see somebody there and it shocks the living daylights out of you when you recognize it's you? I didn't know I slumped like that. Oh, I've got to fix my hair. I've got to, oh, oh, I didn't know. Have you had that experience? Good. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about we think we know ourselves, but all we know is our pictures of ourselves. All we know is these mental pictures that we have made up, that we've acquired in life for whatever reason. And those are the pictures we look at. Self-observation is about not about these snapshots this and that, because that's what they are. They're snapshots. We take one little portion of ourselves. We take a snapshot. That's the good picture. So you go to Olin Mills or whatever the photography studio is, and you go and you have your portraits done. What do they have? They have a proof sheet. What does the proof sheet mean? It means you go through the proof sheet and you pick out the pictures that you want. How many of the pictures on that proof sheet do you want? The ones that make us look more like what we think we should look like more like what we want to look like. Those are the pictures inside our heads, yeah. And that's pride and vanity, and that keeps us blind to what we really are. And if we weren't, someone pointed out to me, in last time I was in the UK, someone pointed out to me, oh, you're still as vain as you always are. You always pick the pictures you like the best to put up of yourself. And I go, yeah, that's true, I do. I see absolutely no reason to put up pictures of myself that I don't like. Yep, that's true. Well, then you're just vain. Yep, that's true. But you don't have to spit it at me like it's a sin. It's just the way it is. I'm not particularly identified with it. I acknowledge it as, yeah, that's true, I'm vain. And here's the rub. Well, what are you doing about it? Do you remember the first part of this you can't do? I'm not doing anything about it. I'm looking at it. I'm acknowledging it. I'm separating from it. I'm not pulling my hair out about it. I'm not going crazy about it. I'm not trying to fix myself. I'm saying, yes, that's true. I do. That's true. I'm vain. Well, stop it. Okay, you first. Show me how. And and the thing is, is you're here because you don't know how. But you want to show me how. But you're here because you don't know how. And you're hoping that maybe I'll give you the key. Okay, well, maybe he can give me the key, you know, and then I'll turn the key in the lock and then I won't be vain. Maybe. Maybe if you do turn the key in the lock. But the thing is, is it's a combination. And it's not just one turn. It's this way, and it's that way, and it's this way, and it's that way, and it's listening for this click, and it's, oh, i got to start over again, I missed that, shh, you go back, and it's that. It takes time. But we don't have time. We want it right now. I'm going to get through this, honestly. If you begin to observe yourself sincerely two or three times a day, you begin to accumulate more conscious moments concerning what you may really be like, apart from the pictures that you have of yourself. You've heard you can't cure yourself. I hope you've heard that. You can't cure yourself. You can't heal yourself. You can't redeem yourself. You can't save yourself. It's not something you can do. It's not something you can do. It's like Gurdjieff gave the idea of being imprisoned. And the only way to get out of prison was to have a map. And the only way to get the map was by somebody who had already seen what the prison was like and how to get out. 
somebody who had already gotten out. And then you have to have somebody on the outside, you know, who's got the getaway car for you. You have to have somebody on the outside who can send you the map. You've got to have somebody on the outside who can give you the file to saw through the bars or whatever. And so you can't do it by yourself. It takes someone from the outside. This whole idea is the answer to life is not in life. The answer to life is outside what we call life. It's not in this system. It has to come from outside of this system. This system is the prison. And the guard, the warden for your prison is your mind. But that can't be true. My mind is my only friend. But your mind is not your friend. Your mind is the keeper. Your mind is what keeps you enslaved. And it's because your mind is served by you rather than you having your mind serve you because you have no control of your mind. You sit down to meditate and what's that like? Well, if you know anything about anything, if you've done it at all, and you have any shred of honesty and self-observation inside yourself, you say it's impossible. The mind will not shut up. It will not leave me alone. I can start off to meditate and next thing you know, I itch. And then I've got to, and then I remember this. And then the mind says, what about that? And there's some people who'll be meditating and all of a sudden they find themselves at the door. They find themselves, they had to get up and go get a glass of water. They had to do this, they had to do that. What told them that? It's always the mind. It's always the mind. And most people do it without ever knowing it. I've seen people in the middle of meditation and all of a sudden they're driving their car somewhere. They go, what the? I was meditating, what happened? They don't have a clue. Just the mind told them they had to do something right now and they just did it because it wasn't the mind telling them. It's because they thought it. It's because the most pressing thing in the world right now. They had to do it right now. And they forgot all about the meditation. This is the multiplicity of selves. This is the different eyes inside of us. One is king of the mountain now. The king of the mountain was the one who wanted to meditate. He didn't last long. How long does that last? It doesn't last long. Before You start off with great intentions. You go, yes, I'm going to do this. And you end up going, oh, this is boring. This isn't working. This isn't happening. I'm going to do it some other time. That's some other eye, some other group of eyes coming up and telling you that. And you're calling it you because you're identified with it. And so you serve it. You can't cure yourself as the light that heals you. As we are, we don't understand of what we need to be cured. We just don't know. And that's a tremendous hindrance. You know, did you ever watch that, that television? Of course you didn't, but you ever heard of the television program House? Where it's this doctor who is like this great diagnostician. You know, he diagnoses these really wild, hard cases. And he makes a lot of mistakes. And he has a terrible bedside manner and people don't like him. Blah, 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 blah. And... Uh, it's like that. We're, we, we, don't, we haven't even diagnosed the problem, yet we're trying to fix ourselves. We're trying to heal ourselves. And we wonder why we don't do it. We wonder why we're still drinking Pepsi. We wonder why we're still doing this thing that we know we shouldn't be doing. Why am I doing that? Because we have not diagnosed the problem. That's why. We don't know the disease, so we don't know how to cure it. We react over and over in the same way without noticing it. This doesn't engender development or free us from mechanical reactions. Doing the same thing over and over again if you think the same thing you thought yesterday, today is going to be the same as yesterday. The only thing that's going to change today is if you think differently, if you change the pattern of your thoughts, metanoia. If you begin to change your mind, then you will begin to change your behavior. If you begin to change your behavior, your level of being will change. If your level of being changes, if your being changes, you will attract a different life. How does that happen? You don't need to know that any more than you need to know what happens when you turn the ignition in your car to start it. You don't need to know that to drive your car. All you need to know is that it did start. Then you need to know how to put it in gear and how to steer it where you want it to go. 
you know those things. You don't need to know the timing, how many cylinders are hitting, when they're hitting, what the fuel is doing, how much air mixture is the fuel mixture, what the combustion. You don't need to know that stuff. But we want to know that stuff. Why? Well, we want to know that stuff because if we do that, we don't have to do that. If we think about all that stuff, we don't actually have to drive the car. We can just sit there and listen to the radio. Oh, you know, it's got heated seats and I got my favorite music in there. Wow, put the seat back and it's really great. And you never go anywhere, but you feel good. And you know all about how the car works, but you don't go anywhere. And in case you hadn't noticed, most of your life is like that. Most of your life is sitting in the car feeling good but not really going anywhere that you've never been. You ever watch these, these things where you'll see a, a film and they'll have two actors sitting in a car and they're not going anywhere. Like the car is on a trailer, you know, so a flatbed, and it's being pulled along. And they had these cameras set up all around and the scenery is going by and these people are sitting in the car acting and they're not driving at all. They're being pulled along. The car is not even turned on. They add the noise later. <coughs> But for us in this little frame, no, that's reality. That's the way it is. Look, look, they're doing that. And we're totally identified with it. This is our life. This is what we're doing. We're sitting here in this car and the scenery's going by and that's life. And we think we're driving. But the truth is, is that life has got us on this flatbed and it's taking us where it wants us to go. And we don't know it. We think we're in control. We think we're driving. It's a good analogy, but it's true. And we need to see that. And the only way to see it is to face it. And the only way to face it is to bite the bullet and say, well, I guess I'm not who I thought I was, and I guess I can't do what I thought I could do, and maybe I'm not really one. Is it possible? Is that even possible? Is it possible that I could be so wrong? Is it possible you could be so miserable? Is it, is it possible you could be so jammed up? Is it possible you could be so out of touch with yourself? Yeah, it's possible. In fact, it's highly likely. In fact, one day you will see more and more of the truth of that. And the more of it you see, the more you will have second, the second force of the three Ds, despondency, depression, discouragement. The more you will have that to deal with. And you'll either deal with it or you'll succumb to it and you'll give up. If you begin to observe it, even while doing it and being incapable of stopping it, whatever it is, over time you accumulate what this, with esoteric teachings or what this work calls a work memory concerning that thing. So you pick one thing. So let's say you have a tendency to stuff your emotions and not really express them, not really be authentic with your emotions, not really be authentic with your feelings. Let's say you, let's say you just take a wild, arbitrary thing and say, well, let's say you do that, which of course we know you don't, but let's say you just pretend that you did. And so you would have to see that and you would see that and you would go, oh, but I can't do anything about it. it. It won't come up. I was talking to Susan the other day and I said, well, <coughs> You seem angry. She said, I don't feel angry. I said, you don't feel anything. I think I said that more than just to Susan yesterday. I think I said it to other people too, because what I noticed is that there are people who just didn't feel anything. They were just not connected with their feelings. I would say, what do you, what do you feel about that? And they would tell me what they thought. That happens more than you can possibly imagine. I've been doing this over 40 years. I've worked with thousands of people. I cannot tell you how many people cannot tell me what they feel. They will tell me every time what they think, but they will not tell me what they feel because they don't know what they feel. Or they'll tell me what sensations they're having. Oh, my left butt cheek, my left buttocks is numb. Well, that's great, that's a sensation, that's not a feeling. Well, what do you mean it's not a feeling? Then they want to argue about it. It's like, well, go argue with somebody else. I'm not interested in arguing. If you want to learn, if you want to understand, if you want to know this, then listen, pay attention, and try it, verify it yourself. This is a sensation. You, know, you rub your hands together. That heat you feel is a sensation. 
A feeling is something else. A feeling, an emotion is something else. All of our emotions that we have, predominantly, are all negative. That means they have opposites. We love this person one minute, we hate them the next minute. When I say hate, you say, oh, but I don't hate anyone. Is there anyone you avoid? Well, yeah, but that's not hate. Right. Mild irritation covers and masks intense rage. It's just labeling. All negative emotions lead down to violence. All negative emotions lead down to violence. And all of our emotions are negative, which makes us violent and objectionable and unpleasant and difficult. Are you a difficult person? Well, not really. Not as difficult as Bill. Bill's more difficult than I am. Don't you agree? Well, I'm sure I can find somebody to agree. Bill, would you agree? Yeah, there you go. So Bill even agrees. So clearly Bill is more difficult than I am. <coughs> so there you have it. That's how we do it. But if you do this, if you gradually, over time, observe these things, you will start to develop a work memory. Remember what I told you about the kitchen? I'd misplace things in the kitchen. I'd blame somebody else. But then I started to see that I was the one who left it. Over time, I gradually started to remember, I'm the one who's doing this. And eventually, that was there for me. Eventually, I got over that. Eventually, I actually changed. Now, when I go into the kitchen, I can't find something. I don't say, what did she do with that? I said, I wonder where I left that. It's a huge difference. A huge difference. It may seem like a small thing, but it's not a small thing. There are no small things when it comes to consciousness. There are no small things. If you have a little bit of light, it dispels a huge amount of darkness, and it changes things in a radical way. And it doesn't change just that thing. It changes your entire being. You become a different person. You become a softer, kinder, more aware, gentler person. You become a person who can externally consider another human being instead of take them for granted and think there's something wrong with them and have accounts about them and internal considering about them. It's a little thing like that. Work memory, they call it. Work memory. And that's something we can actually develop. It takes time, but we can actually develop it. Over time, then you find yourself gradually less willing to do what you've always done. I found myself less willing to blame her, which is what I'd always done. It was easy. It's easy. It's easy to blame somebody else. It's not so easy to take the credit for the things that are not so great in your life. It's like it must be somebody else's fault. We all know that we wouldn't do that to ourselves. Why would I do something that stupid to myself? Because you don't know you're doing it. Because you think someone else is doing it. I've given the example of two dogs fighting. If they're two dogs fighting, if you go up and you hit one of the dogs with a stick to get the dog to stop, to pay attention to you, the dog will just bite the other dog harder and fight harder because it cannot distinguish where the pain is coming from, just like us. We don't know where it's coming from. We ascribe it to something out there. We project it. And when we project it, we don't own it. And we don't own it, we can't do anything about it because it's all out there. It's all under someone else's control. We're lost, lost at that point. There are two memories. Now, this is the rub. There are two memories. A sleeping person's ordinary memory is nearly always based on negative states, internal considering, and account keeping. So think about your ordinary memory. Who was your worst nightmare in school? Any time from grade school through university, whatever you went to. Who was your worst nightmare? Worst teacher? Worst bully? Worst subject? Worst class? Worst experience? Okay. <coughs> That's ordinary memory. That's ordinary memory. We can remember the bad things. They're easy to remember. The hard, the, the, the hard things to remember are the, not the great things, but the good things. They're harder to remember. The horrible things are easy to remember because we keep internal accounts, because of this ordinary memory, which is almost, which is almost always based on negative states. Internal consideration. We weren't treated properly. They didn't understand us. They didn't give us enough time. We didn't have the same t 
tools that other people had. It wasn't our fault. That's internal considering and, of course, account keeping. The other memory, the rare one, is based on properly directed self-observation and it accumulates over a long period of time. Too long to suit us. I don't care how long it is. It's too long to suit us. If it's 15 minutes, it should have been 10. If it's two years, it should have been one. Whatever it is, it's too long because we're impatient. If you remember, we're talking about patience. Ordinarily, this conscious memory is what can cure us. Our ordinary memory just keeps us down. Negative states, internal considering, just keeps us down. It keeps us on the treadmill. It keeps us doing the same thing over and over and over again. But this conscious memory is what can cure us. Light means consciousness. That's what light means. Light means consciousness. When esoteric teachings talk about light, when they talk about being anointed, they're talking about light. Anointing was done with oil. Back in those days, you stuck a wick in oil. You didn't even need a wick. They had lamps that they would just light the lamp at the end and the oil would come up to there. They'd light the oil and the oil would give light, would burn and would give light. Oil meant light. Anointed meant somebody who had oil poured on them. The representation was they were enlightened. They had light. So light means consciousness. When you have light, it means you are aware. You are conscious of something that you were not conscious of before or that other people may, may not be conscious of. It's the light that can heal us. It's the light that does the work. We think, when Gurdjieff said, a man must work against chief feature in order to change himself, we think that we can change ourselves. What he really means is, if you work against chief feature by bringing more and more light into your internal darkness, you will be changed by the light. So, in a sense, you change yourself by letting the light in, in the same way that if we open the, the, the blinds, the curtains, light comes in. It doesn't mean that you made the light, it just means you let it in. It's been there all the time wanting to come in, but you kept it out for one reason or another. And there are a lot of reasons we keep it out, a lot of reasons. <coughs> and we've talked about many of them. Ordinarily, we live in this internal darkness. We're not conscious of what we do. We think we are conscious of what we do. We think we know exactly what we're doing until we find out that we don't and we aren't. And then it's like, oh, but that's just now. I mean, that was just a, just a brief moment when I was unconscious. The rest of the time, I'm always aware. But awareness, waking up, here's how it starts. When you, here's how you know when you're waking up. You realize you're asleep. All of a sudden, you just go, oh, my God, I'm asleep. I was just totally asleep. And for that moment, you woke up a little bit enough to see how asleep you were. But it doesn't take long, about that long, which isn't very long. Okay, maybe that long, which is even less time. To realize, to, to, to go back to sleep. The moment you think, oh, I'm awake, you're already asleep because you're not awake. And that's just a bitter pill to swallow because we're sure we're awake. We're certain of it. We'd stake our lives on it. And cemeteries are full of people who stake their lives on that. The Darwin Awards were made for people who thought they were awake. Well, that was such a great idea to jump off that roof. I wonder why I died. <laughs> it wasn't a great idea. That's why. But it looked like a great idea. Well, that's because you were asleep and ignorant. You didn't take into consideration what could happen because you were asleep. And now you're dead. So try next time. Whatever. So we live in this internal darkness, imagining, imagining that we're conscious of what we do. We do it over and over again without ever observing objectively our own behavior. We don't observe it objectively. We acknowledge it. Yes, I should probably have had tea, but I did the Pepsi because... I acknowledge it, but I am, a, am I observing the behavior? 
am I observing the behavior in a non-identified way as if I were watching an interesting stranger? Usually not, because when you do, your behavior begins to change. Because there's a reason for that. Why would your behavior begin to change just because you were observing it? The same reason that my behavior in the kitchen began to change because I was observing it. You start to observe the truth and you can no longer live the lie. It's like, how can you do that? You now know who is doing this. You realized, you begin to realize day after day. And remember, who is the one who's putting things in the wrong place? Well, I am. Well, I don't like that. Well, then keep blaming someone else. Don't change. Keep your behavior the same. Okay, I, okay, I don't like it, but I have to admit it. It's true. Okay, now we've made a start. Now get to the place where it doesn't matter. Get to the place where you can embrace that. Yep, I'm the one who's doing it. And from there, your behavior becomes less and less possible for you to behave by blaming someone else to behave in that way. This is why esoteric teachings say we're asleep, we're mechanical, we're governed by 48 orders of laws acting on Earth's population. That it's not just you and me, it's the entire planet. There are the 48 orders of laws pressing in on us all the time, influencing us all the time, restricting us all the time, just as if we were living in prison. If you were born in prison, you wouldn't know about the outside, and even if you did, you would know that's not for you. It would be a myth. It would be a theory. If you've never seen the outside, if you've never been outside, what would you look forward to? You would look forward to breakfast and lunch and dinner. You would look forward to the shower. You would look forward to them bringing you a razor and saying, today's the day you can shave. You would look forward to the movie on Friday night or Saturday night. You would look forward to when the guy came by with the library books and gave you a, gave you a choice of a library book. That would be your life. Your life would not be the life outside. You wouldn't know anything about that. That's exactly our condition. We don't know anything about the life outside of this insanity of 48 orders of laws. We've heard about it, but mostly it's a myth, like Plato's cave, you remember? The guy goes out into the light, he comes back, and here are all these people. They're sitting there, and they're seeing these shadows on the wall cast by the fire. And they're watching this whole thing, and they think that's life, real life. And he says, no, 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 that's not the way it is. Come out into the light. And they kill him, because that's what we do. That's what we do. And I'm not going to labor that point. We've done that forever. The prophets, the sages, the saints have been slaughtered constantly because we are absolutely resistant to the idea that we're not the leaders of everything and we don't know everything. We're not the authorities. That there could be something higher. That there, maybe there's something we don't know and maybe when we're negative it actually is our fault. We're convinced that it isn't that way. Oh my God, I can't believe I talked so long. We don't exist. We're driven by external events imagining that we are doing and not seeing, we are repeating and reacting all the time. The hardest thing in the world is to realize you do not exist, that you are a fiction, that you are not real. It's the hardest thing in the world to accept. You're not real. You're made up. Life made you up and you helped. You're not real. And we don't like that, so we don't look at that. It's this state in which esoteric teachings find us, if we're lucky enough to be found at all. Most people are not. How many people are in this room? How many people are at the hockey game? How many people are paying as much to be here as the people are paying to be in a hockey game. That'll give you an idea who's what's valuable to the people in the world and how many people in the world. Sporadic self-observation won't change you. It's hit and miss. It's like sporadic eating or meditating. It's not good. It's not good to eat sporadically. You eat sporadically, you gorge on one thing, and then you go and you don't eat and you don't eat and you don't eat and you finally get so hungry you'll eat anything. It's not good. It's much better to eat consistently, consciously, with moderation. Agreed? Same thing with self-observation. Observe yourself sincerely two or three times a day. And though you can't change yourself, you can at least become more conscious of how you behave. You can at least figure out who's actually leaving the keys somewhere else. You can at least figure out who left the knife over there. 
you can at least figure out why you're negative, that it's not that other person. This builds up a conscious memory that can change you by weakening your knee-jerk reactions to events. Now we have knee-jerk reactions to events. You're ugly and your mother dresses you funny. I hate that person. Why would he say that to me? My mother doesn't dress me. She hasn't dressed me in years. And yes, she did dress me funny. And we're gone. I don't know where these examples come from. When you let light into yourself, it makes it increasingly difficult to always act in the same way that you always acted. We begin to feel the tedium of our same reactions day after day while we're in our waking sleep. Have you ever just realize how boring your life really is? Have you ever, has it ever occurred to you just how boring your life really is? Like, oh my God, something's got to change here. I need to get out. I need a vacation. I need a new partner. I need something exciting. We need to go to a different restaurant. It's never... I need to observe myself. We need to change these outer things so that life's not so boring. We need some excitement. We need some entertainment. We need a, a new orchestra in town. We need a new conductor. We need a new... I need a new car. We need a new house. We need to move. We need all these other things. We don't need to observe ourselves. That's how it is for us. What we do in our sleep seems fresh to us. Do the same thing in the light, and it becomes stale, and we no longer wish to do it. If you can't remember what you did yesterday and you do it today, it's going to seem fresh. If you're going to remember what you did yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before and it's the same thing over and over again, it's going to be stale. How often do you eat the same thing day after day after day after day without it becoming boring, stale, and you want something else? That's what I mean. As you begin to take these time photos of yourself rather than snapshots, you'll see that you've always behaved like that. You'll see that you've always been this person. You've always been difficult to others in this way or that way. Always. Our pictures of ourselves now are quite the opposite. We don't see ourselves as difficult to other people. We see other people as difficult. It's shocking to hear someone say, I'm never going to like that person. It's like, but, but, but why? I'm so likable. Why, why wouldn't you like me? It's such a shock. It hurts. It's like, well, that's a horrible thing to say to somebody. Why would you say that? You're mean. Couldn't be true. They're, they must be mean. It couldn't be true. <coughs> so... Our pictures of ourselves now are the opposite of what they will be. Our idea is there's nothing terribly wrong with us. Not terribly wrong with us. Yes, yes, we all have faults. Sure, everybody has faults, right? Everybody has faults. I mean, it's normal. Nobody's perfect. This is our justification for staying the same. Great. Daily self-observation will begin to show you a very different picture of yourself. Unsatisfactory. Because we've been controlled without knowing it our whole lives. We've been run somebody else, something else pulling the strings our whole life. We didn't know it. We thought we were doing it. This is all about increasing consciousness. That's what this work is about. It's all about increasing consciousness. Everything about this is about increasing consciousness. Increasing consciousness is as painful as looking into the sun. It's not fun. It hurts. It stabs the eyes. It stabs at us. And we don't like it. It takes an unflinching resolve to continue to do it. It's the only thing that will change you. Not what someone tells you, but what you see inside about yourself. So, yeah, I can tell you what your chief feature is. I can go around and tell you each, each one, and it will do you no good at all. In fact, it will be a huge hindrance, so I won't. And other people could, too, like we talked about yesterday. You could run into a drunk on the street, and he could tell you. You could run into a gypsy, and he could hold up your palm and look and say, oh, here's your chief feature. You wouldn't believe it. That's what we're talking about. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. 
Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.